From the studios of WGMU in Fairfax, Virginia, this is Loose Vegan Indeterminate. Loose Vegan Indeterminate is the podcast of the Economic Society at George Mason University, a registered student organization committed to guiding students, organizing events, and provoking discussion to amplify George Mason's reputation as a destination for economic students. I'm your host, Dominic Pino. Our guest today is Janelle Kamiga. Janelle is a policy analyst with the Center for State Tax Policy at Tax Foundation. She writes about and researches tax policy in all 50 of our wonderful states, which often means keeping tabs on all 50 of our oftentimes less than wonderful state legislatures. She manages to do it with a smile, though, and you can often detect her authorship of a blog post or publication by the presence of fun little anecdotes and, more importantly, puns. We will learn more about her background in due course. Thank you so much for your time today, Janelle. Hey, thanks for having me on, Dominic. Yeah, I'm glad to have you on as well. As listeners can probably tell, Janelle is calling in right now. We are. This is the first time we've done this on Loose Vegan Indeterminate. We have a remote guest today. Um, so uh, would would you mind telling us where you're calling in from today, Janelle? Sure, yeah. I'm calling in from the Tax Foundation office right now. So I'm about a block and a half from the White House. Yep, right down in Washington, D.C. So uh, uh, very exciting. Very excited to have you on. Uh, before we get started, I should mention that I know Janelle from interning at Tax Foundation last summer. I no longer work there, and Janelle is not a spokesperson for the organization. We are both speaking on this podcast in our capacities as free Americans, not as representatives of Tax Foundation. So for the lawyers to get that out of the way, um, let's uh, let's dive in now to some, some recent work that you've done as a policy analyst. Um, you look at state tax policy all over the country, and your most recent publication that is out is uh, State Corporate Income Tax Brackets for 2020 to kind of update people uh, uh, for all 50 states right at the beginning of the year because a lot of states have provisions that come in on January 1st. Uh, so could you maybe explain a little bit about what that publication looks like? Sure. So we uh, we take a look at uh, each of the corporate income tax rates and brackets for each of the 50 states because oftentimes it might be hard to find compiled information. So I figure, hey, Let's put it all in one place. Very easy to uh, compare. We have a map that shows the top rates so that you can easily uh, look at which states are highest, which states are lowest, and compare that way. And then we uh, break it down to the specific brackets uh, in a table lower in the publication. Yeah, and it's often kind of, I don't think a lot of people understand probably that this information is often not very easy to find. And so Tax Foundation, the work that they do to kind of put this stuff together in one place so people can look at it is often often more helpful uh is is often some of the more helpful stuff than even you know looking at specific proposals and things like that which which tax foundation does as well but um, yeah we're always looking to be a resource for the general public in order to find knowledge and information and then especially for different state legislatures that they can see what other states have been doing what they could be doing in the future yeah and, and and that's a super important part the competitive aspect of it between states uh because it's often really powerful to go to a state legislator and say, hey, in this neighboring state of yours, they're doing X. You guys should do X as well. Exactly, yep. Um, so uh, back to the corporate taxes, how did you – so like we said, a lot of this stuff is hard to find. How did you actually go about finding it? What, what, do you, what does it take to, to put all that together in one place? Well, for this report, it's not too bad on our end because we do have a resource called Bloomberg Tax that keeps basically all of the state tax statutes in one place, which is really handy for things like this. So we look through that, and then we do supplement because oftentimes there are changes that are very recent that are going to be updated in there. So we double-check by looking through the state statutes ourselves. So, mm-hmm. And it is that 
It is that Bloomberg, right, of, of YouTube ad fame. Seems like we can't get enough of that guy, but uh, yeah, uh, that's a that is a that is a really interesting resource. I got to use that when I was there over the summer, and it's definitely crazy the amount of stuff you can find on there. Um, so, uh, which states would you say are the best and the worst when it comes to corporate taxation? Okay, well, if we're looking at top marginal rates, which is what we're looking at in that map there, uh, worst is going to be Iowa, which has a twelve percent top rate, and then in second is our favorite, New Jersey, at 10.5%. And then New Jersey is extra special because, yeah, they have brackets like everyone else, but they're not marginal brackets. So whenever a company makes enough to shoot them into a different bracket, that means that all of their income is subject to that new tax rate. So that's, uh, yeah. And they're the only ones that do that, right? I believe so. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think that is right. It's one of those crazy, one of those just crazy New Jersey things. And, and you, you even were kind of joking about it when you answered that. Of course, New Jersey is, is up is up in the top. Uh, See, New Jersey is unique in a lot of ways, but when it comes to tax policy, that's not necessarily a good thing. <laughs> that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Um, and then uh, which states would you say are the best then? Okay, um, yeah, North Carolina, of the states that actually do levy a corporate income tax, North Carolina is only at 2.5%, so they're really uh, taking the cake there. But then uh, Missouri is in second at 4%, which didn't used to be the case, but they made some big changes this year. And they actually lowered their rate from 625 to 4%, and they paid down that change by they no longer give companies the option of choosing which apportionment formula they want to use. So just by cutting out that option, they were able to lower their rate and simplify their system at the same time. And if you could describe for listeners what an apportionment formula is, uh, I think a lot of times people just, when they think of taxes, they just think of the rates and they don't necessarily think of anything else. Sure. So apportionment is a really important concept because a state can't just tax a company as much as they want to. It has to be somehow related to that company's activity in the state. So states have three options of things that they can choose. They can either do payroll, sales, or property. And they have the option to use all three, and some states do that, and some states are like, hey, let's do like 50% sales, and then we'll split the difference between property and payroll, and then other states. Uh, A growing trend is that a lot of states have been going to single sales, where they only determine how much a company owes by how much they've sold into the state. Mm -hmm. And the word for that would be the the tax base, right? Yes. Yeah, so... uh, as I was saying, I think a lot of people, when they when they think of taxes, they just think of rates, and that's usually what people argue about is, you know, what should the highest marginal rate be and all that stuff. But an equally important part is the tax base, or what are you actually taxing? And so, and your tax base can make a huge difference on what your rate ends up being as well, because the broader your base is and the more stable your base is, the more you can lower your rates and still bring in the same revenue. Mm-hmm. And that's a better and less distortive way of collecting revenue, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, speaking of better and more or less distortive ways to collect revenue, uh, also included in this corporate uh, this uh, corporate income tax document is talking about uh, gross receipts taxes a little bit. Could you uh, describe what what that kind of tax is and how it's different from an income tax? Yeah. So a gross receipts tax is basically a tax on business inputs. So that means that in every stage of the production process. A company spends money to get materials or they sell those materials that someone else can make something out of them. But a gross receipts tax is levied on those transactions, which sounds like an okay idea at first. But the fact is 
the more steps there are in that process, the higher that tax ends up being. And the person who ends up paying that isn't really the companies. It's the purchasers who end up buying those goods and end up having to pay more to pay for those taxes along the way. Yeah, because all the, all the corporate taxes are eventually going to get passed on to customers, right? Exactly, yeah. Because that's, that's the difference between a legal instance of a tax where technically the government's levying this tax on corporations, but the economic instance is corporations get money because they sell things. And so the people who end up paying those taxes are actually consumers. Mm-hmm. And speaking of consumers, you also did a publication on a tax where the legal incidence is, is on consumers, and that's the uh, uh, sales taxes. So you, you, you did a publication similar to the corporate income tax one, but on state and local sales taxes in, in 2020, kind of updating updating anybody that's interested on the on the, the status of that in the country. Could you uh, kind of describe how, how those work and how that's different from a, from an income tax? Yeah, definitely. Sales taxes are less economically distortive than income taxes because when you have an income tax, it lands on both current consumption and it also lands on savings for future consumption. And that reduces both you know labor and investment, which is not really what you want to do. Whereas when you have a consumption tax like a sales tax, it's more economically neutral because it only taxes current consumption, like things that you're buying now and not things that you're saving up for. Mm-hmm. And so while sales taxes are probably more annoying because we see them right on the receipt when we pay them, right? Um, they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of more annoying that way, but they actually are a, a less distortive uh, form of taxation um, than income taxes are, especially uh, corporate income taxes, because then you have the added fa- F factor of business investment and all that that it affects. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yep. And um, even though sometimes it can be annoying or frustrating to see how much you're paying in taxes on each receipt, having transparency in a tax is actually a very good thing because then you can see what changes are being made, exactly what's being taken out, and why. Yeah, I've always had kind of a, like, I've always had kind of a theory in my mind that that's one of the reasons that our sales taxes in the United States are lower than they are in some other countries because in, in Germany, for example, they've got a, they have a, well, they have a value added tax, but, it works like a sales tax, and but it's 19%. And there's no state in this country that has a sales tax that high because we see it on our receipts, and over there they don't. They don't They don't put it on the receipt as separate. They just include it in the price right away. So I feel like they – it's just a theory I have. I don't know if it's true, but I feel like they can get away with raising it a lot more because people don't notice. Yeah, I couldn't really speak on the VAT tax because I haven't done a lot of research on it, but for sure it's less transparent, at least for consumers, because, yeah, it's not on the receipt. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the state and local sales taxes, you're looking at you're looking at not only like the corporate tax report where you're looking at state level stuff, but you're looking at local, which means you've got county sales taxes and and, and, um, and city sales taxes as well. So, how is that research process different from the uh, state level corporate research? Vastly different. So we get that data from the sales tax clearinghouse. And they give us a gigantic spreadsheet of every sales tax rate in every zip code in the U.S. And then we take those local numbers and then we weigh them by population and we compare them with the uh, 2010 census numbers. That's what we're using for that. And then um, after we weight that, then we look at which ones changed and then we search through the data and local news sources and then we figure out exactly why they changed, what laws changed, what they're trying to fund with that. So it's a lot more digging, but pretty rewarding, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And the uh, and that digging leads you to can lead you to some interesting stuff about like 
weird things that happened in local politics that you would have never known about otherwise. I, I, I remember that from, from doing stuff at the summer. You come across some of these things and you're like, really? Is that really? That's really what happened. Yep. Yeah, I forget, but I think at some point I found an article about a locality that like raised their sales tax to pay for like zoo improvements, and I was like, huh, that's bizarre, but okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess the zoo was really important to them. I don't know. That's you know, a... yeah, if they if they want to pay for that, then you know that, that's on them. My favorite was there was one. I'm trying to remember exactly how it was, and I don't remember where it was, but I remember there's the municipality that set up a separate tax jurisdiction for a new Taco Bell that they had built. Oh, right. So oh, right. Oh, man. The Taco Bell was, like, by itself in a, like, just that lot was its own tax jurisdiction. It was very weird. Um, but, yeah. Anyway, um, so there's also this fun little acronym called LOST, which is Local Option Sales Tax. Um, you've also done some research on that. Could you explain what a local option sales tax is? Yeah, so you have uh, 45 states that have sales taxes on the state level, but then most states give the option for uh, localities to levy their own sales taxes, and that's where the local option comes in. So, yeah, with the, the sales tax report, we're looking at all the local option sales taxes, and then we're weighting them by population. But, for example, the one, the one state that's a bit of an outlier is Alaska because it doesn't levy a state sales tax at all, but it does allow localities to levy their own sales taxes, and a bunch of them do. Interesting. Yeah. Now, all this stuff is so crazy, and I, I think people oftentimes, they, they just look at, like, federal policy. Not that federal policy is not important. It definitely is. But, you know, they just look at that, and they think that's all there is. But really, there's 50 state governments out there that are doing all kinds of crazy stuff. So, uh um, and, and they're always doing stuff. There's always something happening in the state world. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah, they never take a break. It's not like federal and Congress is out of session, you know. There's not that much going on. Uh, but, yeah, there's somebody's always doing something. And uh, one of those things that they do is uh, sin taxes, which are taxes on things that they want to discourage. Um, and uh, you've you've done a lot of research on, on sin taxes. It's a little... Cool a little bit suspicious, I don't know. Um, you've researched champagne taxes, fireworks taxes, vape taxes, spirits taxes, wine taxes, beer taxes, and even marijuana taxes. Um, so, All the uh, fun ones. Yeah, exactly. So how, so uh, what's what's that like? And if you could kind of give us an idea of uh, what sin taxes are and how they work. Uh, sure, sure. So the purpose of a sin tax, I guess it depends on if you're asking what the purpose of a syntax is supposed to be or what the purpose tends to be. <laughs> because what they're supposed to be is they're commonly levied to discourage certain behaviors. Like they want people to quit smoking, so they raise taxes on cigarettes. And they do that, they discourage those behaviors by decreasing both the supply and the demand on the product by increasing prices. That's what a tax is. But they also tend to um, price in externalities associated with the consumption of those specific goods, like secondhand smoke. That's also something that cigarette taxes are supposed to make a difference in. But oftentimes what happens is that states are turning to excise taxes as a way to raise more revenue, which isn't really ideal because those sin taxes tend to be a lot more volatile of a source, especially in the case of, say, cigarette taxes, because cigarette use has been steadily falling since I believe it's the 1980s. And so a lot of states are finding that source of revenue not necessarily drying up, but being significantly smaller than it used to be. And if they're funding things that aren't related to those externalities, then they're going to be they're going to have to find that revenue somewhere else. Yeah, it's this kind of weird public policy where if it 
works, it like breaks. Because if it works and you successfully discourage the behavior you're trying to tax, then, then you, you don't. Revenue source, yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you don't have any money anymore. So it's like, oh, that that kind of backfired, right? Um, so the goal of this revenue source is to no longer have that revenue source. Exactly. It's not necessarily what states are thinking of when they make these taxes. Yeah. So, uh, do you know? Do you know how much? How much? Do, do you know of any evidence of? How effective these actually are at accomplishing their goals, or do do the is is the story normally that they backfire? I mean, there is a lot of truth to the phrase that whatever you tax, you get less of. Mm-hmm. But that only works as long as your tax rates are reasonable, because otherwise you risk people turning to other options like smuggling. Which again, cigarette taxes. If you look at New York, they have some of the highest smuggling rates in the nation, and which and they also incidentally have the highest cigarette tax in the nation. But then people also could turn to the black market, even if those products end up being less safe. Yeah, I know it's a big thing from Virginia up to New York, because Virginia has, I believe Virginia, is Virginia or North Carolina, one of those has the lowest cigarette taxes, and they buy them here and put them in vans and ship them up to New York, sell them there. It's pretty crazy to yeah, have to... Yeah, Virginia's really low, so yeah, that would not surprise me. Yeah, it's pretty crazy that, you know, that's what people have to do to... Like, like we're all in one country here. I don't know. It just seems just seems pretty crazy to smuggle things across state lines like that. Um, uh, do you know of any really weird ways that states tax vices? Yeah, so I was talking with my colleague, Oliver Bozen, who actually does uh, specific excise tax research for us. I was talking with him this morning, and it's not really a vice, but it is a weird excise tax. And he was telling me that New Jersey levies its jet fuel tax only on fuel consumed in the state. So in other words, as soon as an airplane passes out of New Jersey, it stops paying excise tax on the fuel. So I was like, well, how do they, how could they possibly calculate that? And it ends up being that they only charge, they calculate how much fuel they use on taxiing and takeoff, and then that's the tax that they pay. Wow. So, so. Which is extremely <laughs> specific. So. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So, so they have a separate tax for jet fuel. And it only mm-hmm. accounts it only accounts for taxiing and takeoff in New Jersey. Yep. Yep. <laughs> because I mean as soon as you get off the ground of Newark Airport, you're basically in New York already. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's not like, much there's not much uh, airspace. Yeah, a lot a lot of people live in New Jersey, but I mean there's not a lot of room, so wow, that's yeah. that's crazy. <laughs> so yeah, there's your uh, bizarre fun excise tax tax for the day. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. I'm uh I'm kind of kind of impressed by that actually that somebody came up with that i wonder so do other states other states have jet fuel taxes right like that's not oh, unusual yeah. yeah so yeah but how do they how do they measure it differently like what's the normal way to go about it the normal way is you pay your excise tax when you buy the fuel just like uh diesel and gasoline taxes you pay at the pump oh you okay pay when you buy your jet fuel whereas new jersey is like nah Let's have them pay when they use it. <laughs> That's funny. Um, speaking of speaking of those kind of taxes, uh, uh, the gas tax is always an interesting thing at the state level. Uh, it's interesting at the federal level too, but because um, that's one of those sales taxes that people don't realize they're paying because they don't see it on their receipt. But um, you know, it, well, it, it's really an excise tax, obviously, but uh, it kind of works like a sales tax where it's something that everyday people pay all the time and they don't, but unlike the sales tax you don't realize it um so how is the gas tax how does that work and 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 how does that work at the how does that work out at the state level well oftentimes it depends on the state because 
So we usually get our gasoline tax numbers from the American Petroleum Institute, and they take into account a lot of extra fees associated with gases, like storage fees and things like that, which, of course, like you said, they don't get worked into the actual receipt at the pump, but they do make their way into the actual gas prices. But then you have some states that actually end up including gasoline in their sales taxes and others that don't. So it's not always easy to have an apples-to-apples comparison, but, yeah, API has a way that they usually calculate that. But I'm not entirely familiar with how that works. Sure, sure. Um, So another thing that you've done research on in the past is sales tax holidays. And I know these are these are things that we we hear. Well, first of all, it's called a holiday, so like that sounds kind of exciting, right? Because it's oh, it's yeah. a holiday. I mean, that's great, right? Who doesn't like holidays? Um, everyone loves holidays. Everyone loves holidays, and so they make a sales tax holiday, which is basically where states say, on this day, if you buy this thing, you don't pay sales tax. And this is kind of popular among people. Like, uh, could you talk about that a little bit and uh, whether it's a good idea? Well, sure. Well. I mean, it sounds really attractive on the surface, like, yay, I get a weekend without taxes on these items. That sounds really great. But, uh, you know, yeah, you'll see a bunch of states that have, I don't know, back-to-school sales tax holidays where they exempt your paper and pens and binders and backpacks, and sometimes you'll have disaster preparedness holidays where you can stop up, stock up on flashlights and generators and tarps and stuff. And there are a few main reasons that states do have these. The most is that they want to boost shopping and they want to give relief to low-income tax low-income taxpayers. But the point of the matter is, it's not actually good tax policy. And I'm going to explain, because they don't do what states want them to do. So their first reason was that they wanted to boost shopping, right? But studies show that people don't actually shop more during sales tax holidays. They tend to just shift when they shop. So instead of buying things normally throughout the year, they're going to save up, and they're only going to buy their school supplies on that one weekend, or they're only going to buy flashlights on that one weekend as opposed to just buying them when they actually need the thing. So yeah. it's distorting when people buy and not actually increasing how much they get. Yes, so it's uh, just another example of a decently well-intended policy, but just doesn't doesn't oh, yeah. go across. Yeah, and in terms of intentions, if states want to give relief to low-income taxpayers, instead of taking one weekend and making the tax code a little more confusing and a little more volatile. If they're going to give that relief anyway, they should just lower rates across the board year-round. Mm-hmm. But you would argue that they shouldn't uh, exempt things from their sales tax year-round, right? Correct. The broader the base that you have, the better your sales tax is going to be. An ideal sales tax is a tax on all final consumption. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite ones that states do all the time is they exempt dry cleaning from sales tax. I never really got that. It's always kind of weird to me. Yeah, it seems like a weird thing. Dry cleaning is a little bit different because dry cleaning is a service. Oh, okay. And a lot of states end up, uh, well, yeah, that's a good point. A lot of states end up exempting services kind of by historical accident because most states started their sales taxes in the Great Depression era. And in that time, most of the economy, not like a vast majority, but most of it was goods instead of services. And those are a lot easier to tax and to levy a sales tax on. So most states just didn't bother with the services. But now the economy is a majority services now, which is a big difference. And a lot of states aren't set up to tax those. And they just haven't gotten around to broadening their bases to make it the right size again. Hmm. And that's uh, that's a... Um... Uh, that's been a trend that's been going on for, for quite some time, right? This this long-term shift in our economy to being more service-based than goods-based. Oh, for sure. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, 
And then another publication that you have worked on in the past and you're working on again right now is Facts and Figures. Facts and Figures, yep. That's one of our uh, oldest uh, publications, actually. Our first copy of Facts and Figures was published in 1941. That's awesome. It's been around quite a long time. Wow. So all the way back in World War II. Facts and Figures on, like, war text, I want to say. Let me check if I can find the actual title because that was pretty good. Yeah. Way back in World War II, Tax Foundation was putting out facts and figures, and you're carrying on the legacy today. Oh, yeah. No, facts and figures and war finance. That's what it was. Wow. So, uh, well, what... we're no longer doing facts and figures and war finance, but we are sure doing a lot of tax facts. So Absol- we've got 43 different tables where we take different tax information, mostly rates and collections. Uh, the index is more based on structure, but facts and figures is more based on collections and rates. So we break those down and just have one place where legislators and just the general public can look and easily compare where their state's at, exactly what their state is taxing and how much. Mm-hmm. So, you, so you are tasked with making 43 different tables for all 50 states and the federal government as well, right? Correct. Yep, yep. It's all in there. So um, what? how do you... How do you go about attacking that from a from a researching point of view? I mean, that just seems like a pretty formidable task. See, it seems like it, but it's not actually as bad as you might think because a bunch of these tables end up calculating themselves when we get the right sources. <laughs> so we take information from most of these from the from census, their state and local government finance survey, their state government finance survey, and then their state tax collection survey. And then once I get the information from those three, it fills in, I want to say, about half of the tables by itself. And so then we just have to check to make sure that something in my math Excel spreadsheet didn't break and nothing was doing weird things that it shouldn't do. So hmm. mostly all you have to do on those tables is checking it over. But then the rest of it, you do have to go digging through a bunch of different sources, which a lot of them is going to be Bloomberg tech, so that's not too hard. But then sometimes you end up looking through every state's revenue department for things, and that's where it gets fun. So. Yeah, those revenue departments are always a good time. They uh, always a great time. Yeah they they have a real they have a real passion for readability and easy to find information, <laughs> don't they? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know from looking through stuff about that uh, over the summer that that can get that some of that stuff can get pretty crazy because some of these states it doesn't look like they've touched their Department of Revenue websites for ten years and. Uh, Looks like they're still still left behind there, but um, yeah. Uh, the beauty of the states is that everyone can do things the way they want to, but that's also the downfall of all the state websites. <laughs> nothing is consistent. Yeah, definitely. And they all got different names for all their forms and different names for sometimes they even have different names for the same taxes. And so you're looking through and you're like, well, that looks like the same thing, but it's not, and uh, it'll trick you that way too. Um, so exactly. So facts and figures comes out. Uh, what, when when can we when can we expect the arrival of facts and figures? A little suspense for our listeners here. Uh, next week on the eleventh is the goal. Exciting, yeah. Facts and figures is terrific. Honestly, if if you're if you're interested at all in state tax policy, it's a great thing to look at because you can see everything in one place, and it gives you a really amazing way to to look through these things. And if you're just curious about anything, or if you want to, you know, it's a good starting point for. Uh, research project if you're if you're looking at stuff like that um it's definitely a good place to look and takes but consolidates information that you'd have to run around the internet for for days and puts it all in one place so um 
Yeah, we did the running for you, so you don't have to. Yeah, there you go. And it's all it's all free. It's all right online. You can just go online, download it. You, you guys post the uh, you post the spreadsheets too, right? Oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, so everything's right on there. You can put it right into Excel, and yeah, it's 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 a great it's a great publication. I'm, I'm a big fan. And then you got the little the little printed orange booklets. Are, are they are they going to be orange this year or maybe a different color? No, they're purple this year. They're I'm very purple excited. this year. I got to uh, I got to give my input on what kind of purple we're using, so nice. they're going to be beautiful. Nice, nice. Yep. So they get the little ones, and you guys mail those out to how many? You guys mail those out everywhere, don't they? So we mail out about ten thousand copies of those, yeah. and we send them to every state legislator in the United States. Wow. And then more people as well. Usually we send them to a bunch of think tanks as well. So, yeah, they go everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, so nobody has any excuse to not know uh, not know about exactly. facts and figures. Yep. That's great. Um, that, you always find one typo right after you printed 10,000 copies. That's, uh, <laughs> that, that's got to be a terrible feeling. That's how feeling. research works. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I uh, just got a couple of questions in general for you then. Uh, what are the best and worst states to research regardless of their policies? So, you know, regardless of whether they have good tax policy or not, which ones are the most easiest or the easiest and the hardest to, to research? Well, I think, well, I guess, well, it's not really in terms of easier, hard on the ones that I enjoy researching. I'd want to say that the most fun are probably the most unique states. So usually their tax codes aren't great, but there's a lot to look at. Mm-hmm. Like recently, I've been looking into a bunch of stuff in Louisiana because that's one of my states. And so I've been learning about their specific tax credits and their specific systems. And I mean, it's a home rule state. Their sales tax collections are just whack. But it's it's so much fun to, like, see how it works and see how you can change it. And, yeah, anyway, I like the really unique states. Those are pretty fun. Yeah, But Lu- then in terms of, yeah. I was just say Louisiana is just insane for everything. They've got, you know, because they, they, they're on that, they're on that, like, french code law system down there and they do a bunch of weird stuff but it's just it's a fascinating state to look into it's a lot of fun yeah no uh, yeah definitely uh and then what do you think is what do you think is the the worst the least enjoyable for you well that one hmm like i don't have any states that i don't enjoy hearing about but it comes down to ease of research in that case which like you were saying it's all based on websites, like whose websites are terrible and whose websites are really easy to use. Like, I'm not, I don't even cover Wyoming, but I remember having to look on their website for something and just being like, what font is this? Where are the links that I want? <laughs> Nothing looks like it should. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I was initially going to ask this question, what's your least favorite state to research and why is it Illinois? But... I decided. To, <laughs> I decided. To, I decided against it. Well, well, you know, Illinois is actually a lot of fun to uh, to think about, but that's not actually on my uh, list of focus states, so I don't get to claim that privilege. Oh, that's too bad. What? Why? Why is it not? I feel like you're. I feel like you're especially well suited to research Illinois. <laughs> maybe a little too well suited. Yeah, maybe yeah. that's it. Yeah. Uh, what would you say is the most frustrating part about your job, and what's the most rewarding? Part of the most enjoyable part of my job is also tied in with the most frustrating part of my job, and that's the fact that there's always so much to do, mm-hmm. and I love that. But you can't always give as much to each project as you'd like to give because there's just so many projects to do. It's like I would love to be able to spend like a week doing this and making sure that it's like absolutely perfect, making sure that I understand every angle of this 
particular tax policy, but that's not always an option. So mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. Yeah, because there's just so much out there. That's what happens when you get... In terms of other rewarding things about the job, it's probably, other than the, uh, the, uh, the amount of work that I get to do, it's probably a toss-up between two things. And one is being part of making real change that benefits everyone involved, because tax is just taxes everywhere. It mm. involves everything and everyone. And if you make changes that actually end up doing things for the better... Like, you've actually changed the world. It's, it's awesome. It's a great feeling. Mm-hmm. And there's a toss-up between that and the fact that my coworkers are just awesome. Like, I love them. They're great. Mm-hmm. They're passionate about they, what they do, and they don't mind me asking stupid questions all day, every day. It's a fantastic place to learn. I really love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely had a similar experience uh, when, when I was at Tax Foundation, especially working with uh, the one and only Jared Walzak, uh, who... Um, Classic. He's, I mean, he's the only guy who you can learn, you know, everything about the Virginia gross receipts tax and also about the non-existent rat population in the province of Alberta, Canada. Alberta, Canada. Yep. There's no rats in Alberta, everybody. Anybody who's listening needs to know there are no rats in Alberta. They have none. Because they waged an actual war on rats and they won. And they won it. It's absolutely amazing. They, they banned rats yeah. and it worked. It's truly remarkable. And that, yeah, we, we learned that from Jared, so thanks, Jared. Uh, yeah, I, I learned other things from Jared, too, but I, I, hope he's, I hope he's proud of the fact that that is the thing I remember the most. Because <laughs> um, it, it is. That's just the honest truth. Um, I mean, I brought it up at Christmas dinner, and it was a hit, so, you know, it's not a bad story to remember. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, and it's especially funny because after he told me this, I looked, you can find, like, heat maps of the rat population worldwide and sure enough there's just like it's just blank in alberta like there's nothing there's rats everywhere else in the world except there it's, it's insane um uh anyway um so so yeah that uh, could you tell us a little bit more than about that kind of dc policy uh, uh work environment and and what that's like because you know there's a fair amount of people probably you know that are college students right now they're thinking about getting in that line of work um especially if you're an economics major so um what what do you what would you uh what would you have to say about that i mean the work environment it's kind of what i'm used to because i've been in the think tank world a while but it's i mean there's always something happening but the thing that's different about dc i think is the sense that literally everyone knows each other like it seems like it's a big city but it's a really small family Mm -hmm. it's actually a little bit creepy sometimes it's extremely creepy. <laughs> I remember, so I ended up going to brunch with a girl that I met at, like, a church event, but she didn't go to church with us. She was at a different church, and so she invited me over to brunch at her house, and so I went there, and suddenly she figured out that I worked at Tax Foundation. She was like, oh, my gosh, my boyfriend works there. And I was like, no, he does not. <laughs> it's just, it's so connected. It's weird. Yeah. No, there's always... <laughs> There's always something, and uh, it definitely definitely drives over the importance of, like, make a good impression on people because you never know who you'll be talking to that will have a significant other at a place that you work at and then you don't know and you don't want to be, you know, mm-hmm. you don't want to make mm-hmm. a bad impression with that. So it's the only thing that I really know because I'm a college student and I go to college around here, uh, but I feel like that's got to be pretty unusual in terms of cities, right? I mean... Yeah, I mean, I worked in Chicago for a semester, and I did not experience that at all. Mm-hmm. So I can only assume that it's a D.C. thing, because 
most people who are here are tied up in the policy world, and so people end up interacting with each other a lot more than they would in other cities. That's my uneducated guess here. Yeah, and everyone's in, like, a mission-based organization where they have some kind of thing they're trying to do, and it's, you know, that's a that's a different dynamic as well, I think. Um, yeah, for sure. So uh, let's uh, get a little bit into your, in your background, like I mentioned in the introduction. Um, so where did you... Where did you go to college? You know, we're, we're, this is a podcast aimed for, for college students. So uh, where did you go to college and what did you study? So I went to a really small Christian college in the northwest corner of Iowa. It was called Dort College. That's Dort with a T at the end and not a K. They are very often confused. I just saw it was recently, uh, it recently got promoted to Dort University, didn't it? I know, right? But when I attended, it was still a college, but yes, now it's called Dort University, so my diploma is no longer valid. I like to call it vintage, (laughs) because it's still got the college on it. Yeah. But but I was an English writing major, and I was a chemistry minor, which was fun and very hard to schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I can imagine they didn't, uh, they didn't. They didn't consider that overlap when they were making the the course schedule. Yeah, no, no, I I can't imagine why. Yeah, <laughs> it's such a common overlap of interest. I mean, how could that not? How could that not happen? Uh, what? Why? Why did you? Why did you do that? And then why do you now work at a tax policy organization? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. <laughs> so originally, I thought I maybe wanted to go into like science journalism because I thought, well, I like technical things, but I also really like writing. And I feel like that's not an intersect that happens very often. So, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. So I did both. And then it turns out that I'm really not that great at chemistry. And okay. so I didn't love that, but I loved all my chemistry pals. And so I was like, well, I may as well finish out the minor. But in the course of that, I ended up interning at the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, which was a think tank back in my hometown in Midland, Michigan merely because it wasn't that I was interested in policy at the time. It was because I really didn't like my after-school job. (laughs) I was like, well, let's do something else. This is open. So I applied and I got in, and I was like, well, these think tanks are fun, but it's not something I want to dedicate my life to. And then three summers later, I was still at the Mackinac Center, and I went, shoot, this is something that I want to dedicate my life to. (laughs) But it's too late to change my major, so I guess we're just stuck as we are. Uh Uh-huh. So that's why I ended up being both an English major and a chemistry minor. And so uh, my, my former boss at the Mackinac Center, he realized that I would probably have an issue getting fired. But he's like, you know what, you got to just, you got to work somewhere else and you got to diversify your resume. I was like, okay. So I ended up uh, interning at the Reason Foundation that next summer, which is while well, I was at their Los Angeles office. So I could have been in D.C., but I wasn't because mm-hmm. I wanted to be near my siblings who happened to be in California. So I was like, hey, this works out. So I did a lot of research for them. And then in the fall, I interned and took classes in Chicago. And so I ended up interning at the Illinois Policy Institute, which is another state-based think tank and why I know a lot about Illinois' political stuff, which is great fun. Yeah, there's some wild Illinois... There's some absolutely wild it's, stuff. It's people, a wild state. I don't it's think, a wild state. Yeah, people that, don't, people that aren't familiar with Illinois... I think, because oftentimes Illinois will be the the butt of jokes about like corrupt government or whatever, or, you know, the classic um, you know dead people voting and that kind of thing. Yeah. But people don't realize it's it's actually pretty bad. Like it's not it's not just a joke. Sometimes like there's some some pretty shady stuff going on in that state. Yeah, if you haven't heard it, you should go look it up because it's it's a lot of good stories. 
Yeah, a lot of good stories, especially about that House Speaker they got there who's been in power for 35 years. <laughs> yeah, something like that now. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Longest great. running Speaker of the House in uh, history. Well, at least, you know, in the state. So. Yeah, absolutely nuts. So you, so you jumped around there between those organizations, and then you ended up you ended up at Tax Foundation. So how did you? Yeah. So you while I was still while I was still interning at Illinois Policy, uh, my old boss from the Mackinac Center mentioned that Tax Foundation was hiring, and I was like, you know what? Why not? So I applied for Tax Foundation, and I didn't think I was going to get it because I still had a semester left of college, and so they wouldn't really be able to take me on until May. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we're just going to take a shot because this sounds relatively cool and so i interviewed with them and then the more i talked with them the more i just fell in love with the job and i was like darn it i really want this i really (laughs) want to work in tax policy this sounds amazing Uh but then uh so then uh i talked with the hr person after i had had my interview and they're like yeah we don't really do remote so it's probably not going to work and i was like well darn that's unfortunate Mm -hmm. but then the next day she called me back and they're like so they changed their mind and you can work remote and i was like okay sweet (laughs) so then i ended up doing a part-time work for tax foundation uh in iowa until i graduated in may and then i moved out here and the rest is history so wow yeah no that's amazing and i I think uh i think a lot of times people when they're in college and you know you were here you were in that space just a couple of years ago so definitely feel free to feel free to comment on that but uh, i feel like people people are in college they feel like they got to have this like perfect plan set out and they got to have their perfect plan and they just got to like execute their plan and all this stuff and you know you are a real person with a real job and it was a lot of weird things you didn't expect yeah yeah i mean some people actually have plans i don't have plans and yet it still ends up working out so if you end up changing your major like five times don't worry about it i changed my major twice and it all turned out okay i i spent a uh, dark semester as a journalism major i will admit that one wow i'm sorry about that but not what i what i wanted to do with my life now honestly i did have a lot of fun journalism journalism is totally respectable but not what i wanted to dedicate my life to Uh so then i switched back to english and i was like well how am i going to get hired here and then Weirdly enough, the combination of chemistry and English actually works for the job I'm doing because I end up doing a ton of spreadsheet work and a ton of analysis when I end up writing about it. So it's mm-hmm. like I never expected that my skill set would actually be useful somewhere, and yet it is, which is kind of a cool feeling. So, yeah. yeah. And it's definitely be open to opportunities that you don't expect because sometimes those are the best ones you can possibly find. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a great message. And I think that. Um... Uh, I think that a lot of people are, you know, think they, you know, like you said, you, you didn't expect that your, your skill set was going to be able to come in so work so perfectly in this, but like the combination of technical and then, and then writing about it in a creative way that people can understand is, 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 uh, indispensable really in what you do. Um, so, uh, in terms of being in DC and living in DC, uh, this is something that people are obviously, I, and w- not without reason, I, I think uh, people are people get concerned about because they say, you know, I want to do something in this space. I want to work in the policy world. I want to work at a organization with a mission like that. But man, living in D.C. just sounds too hard. It just sounds terrible. Um, how are you? How are you making it? Honestly, I'm loving D.C. a lot, and I didn't really expect to. But 
It's a fantastic city. So, I mean, if you do want to be in the policy world, D.C. is the place to be. Like, this is the place to make connections. This is where you run into people randomly and end up having to, knowing their, the, uh, the organization they work for. But, like, in terms of just D.C. itself, it's just a really cool city. Like, you get to have so much historical significance. Like, I, when I go on a walk at lunchtime, I can see the Washington Monument, and honestly, that's this really cool feeling. And I can just walk down to the monuments, and I can go eat at restaurants. And, uh, yeah, the only thing that's really a problem, I'd say, is that housing is really expensive over here. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it's a struggle to find a place to live. So I ended up... Uh, living with a family from church the first couple months that I was here for really cheap, which was awesome, but I was also like an hour and 45 minutes away from work, which is not something I wanted to do. So I ended up moving twice since I moved here just because I was trying to find a place that was both convenient and it was also cheap. So yeah, housing is a struggle, but if you end up finding a couple people that you want to live with, you can totally make it work. Mm. Like, absolutely. And, like, my current housing situation is fantastic. Like, I have a great apartment. I have great roommates. I'm really close to a bunch of stores. I have a shuttle that takes me to the metro every morning. Like, honestly, it works out fantastic. So. Yeah, definitely. And and the importance of having uh, those other support networks, too, like your church you mentioned, is definitely big as well, right? Oh, it makes a huge difference. Because, yeah, I have no family over here. Like, my family's in uh, Washington and California. So mm -hmm. I came over here. I knew no one. And by joining a church, and if you don't go to a church, by joining other activities, like, you can find your family away from your family. And mm -hmm. it's kind of awesome. Because that's the nice thing about D.C. is because almost no one in town is actually from in town. Mm -hmm. They're all transplants as well. They're all people who are just trying to get their way in the policy world. And they've come from a bunch of different states and a bunch of different backgrounds. And they're always willing to let people in because they know what it's like which is a lot different than, than a couple different places I've lived, which is really awesome. Yeah, like like Chicago. <laughs> yeah, like and then I was in Los Angeles for summer. That was not my favorite because everyone who's in Los Angeles has always lived in Los Angeles and will always live in Los Angeles. Yeah. So they're not necessarily the most open, whereas uh -huh. here they know what it's like and they're all for expanding their friend group. So. Yeah. No, definitely. There's always that opportunity there. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any any recommendations for stuff to do in D.C.? Because you know we're not that far away out here in Fairfax. So, uh, any any recommendations of, of stuff to do? So I haven't done a bunch of the tourist stuff myself. Although if you do want to do tourist stuff, definitely do it in the fall because then you won't have to you know elbow your way through hordes of students wearing the same bright green T-shirt. Yeah, those but, are always fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in terms of just D.C. being a big city, there's so much to do. Like, you can pick up weird hobbies. Like, so, Dominic, you know Catherine, but for those who don't, my colleague Catherine is really into flying trapeze. And so she goes every now and then. So I was like, hey, Catherine, you got to bring me along sometime. So she dragged me along with her, and there's this trapeze school down in Navy Yard, and it's so much fun. My goodness, it is so much fun. That sounds awesome. It feels awesome. like you're flying. And, yeah, they, can, they just teach you how to do, like, trapeze skills. And that's just a thing that you can do. Because you live in D.C. <laughs> and uh, so I've been back a couple times, actually, but it's kind of expensive, so I haven't been back that much. But, you know, great fun. Yeah. And then, and then there's apparently a place over in Glen Echo, Maryland, that teaches, like, swing dancing lessons every Saturday. I haven't gone yet, but I mean to very soon, because that sounds like a whole ton of fun. And I recently picked up rock climbing, because that's also a thing you can do around here. So just, like, just make use of the fact that D.C. is a big city. Like, oh, man, concerts. Concerts actually come through town, 
that is never something I've experienced before. But my favorite heavy metal artist is going to be in town like next month, and I'm going to go see him because I can, uh-huh. and it's amazing. Yeah, it's a little different than uh, a little different than Sioux Center, Iowa. A little Iowa. different than Sioux Center, Iowa, for sure. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm a small town girl just having a whole ton of fun right now. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, like you said, there's so many. Is that trapeze place? Is that kind of near the National Stadium? Yeah, it's really close to that. That's what I thought. I feel like I think I've walked by there before, actually. So that I, is very possible. Wow, that's crazy. Um, and then I guess uh, last thing, do you have any any sage advice for us us college kids looking to uh, looking to make a splash in the in the DC policy world? Any 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 final final advice for us? I mean, if you can get internships, make the most of them. Like, especially because sometimes day-to-day stuff can get really busy, but you should really keep track for yourself what projects you've been working on because, A, it makes you feel really accomplished at the end of the summer, and then, B, it makes it a cinch when you're trying to write your resume. It's just always keep a list of things you've done. And then try to make try to meet as many people in your workplace as possible because, as before, everyone in D.C. knows each other, and the more contacts you have, the better your chances of actually making things are. Then the other thing is, if you want to be in the political world, get a Twitter, because everyone is on Twitter, and the number of people that you can just, like, randomly meet and actually become friends with is weirdly fantastic. Yeah, this is something I learned, because I was, I was anti-Twitter for a very long time. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm anti-social media in general, um, and then uh, the only thing I ever had was LinkedIn, because, I mean, come on, LinkedIn is LinkedIn's just... What a, what a platform, right? So the only thing I ever had was LinkedIn. And then um, in in July, actually, while I was at Tax Foundation, I finally caved in and I got a Twitter. And, uh, and I'm proud of you. Yeah, and I've had a similar I've had a similar experience that you described that has been it's been surprisingly pleasant. I don't I don't know. Um, you know, I, I I think I think a lot of times people's um, people are people make excuses about Twitter and try to blame Twitter for the fact that. They're either being mean, they're just being mean people, or they they follow a bunch of really mean people. It's like, I don't yeah. know. If people... like if you have a limited number of followers, and if you exercise basic human decency, it can be pretty fun, and you can make some pretty good friends. Like, if you if you make sure to follow people in your field of interest, then you can make some really great connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because there's, it's, especially with policy people, it's just the way people share information now. I mean, you... you exactly. You'll get, you know, you it's you can connect with you know other people at other organizations that do similar work to you and then you can connect with the reporters who report on that on that mm-hmm. field and and then everybody's right there and so you kind of make this little network of people that um can you you can learn a lot yeah yeah and you can hear what's happening before everyone else does and then you can be ahead of all of the memes yeah. yes yes exactly and you can and you can follow uh listeners you can follow Janelle for um uh, the best puns on Twitter. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, do you, you want to tell us your your Twitter handle if if, if anybody if anybody wants to follow you? Oh sure, it's Janelle Cam, and that's J A N E L L E C A M M. All right. Um, well, thanks so much for uh, being a guest with us today, Janelle. I really appreciate it. Hey, thanks so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. 
All right. Uh, Loose Vegan Indeterminate is a production of the Economic Society at George Mason University and is now available just about anywhere you can find podcasts. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podcast Addict, Overcast, Radio Public, Pocket Cast, and Breaker. Special thanks to the wonderful folks at WGMU, including General Manager Henry Fisher, Production Director Grace Snyder, and Faculty Advisor Roger Smith. You can follow the Economic Society on Twitter. Our handle is at EconSocietyGMU. To see our blog or upcoming events, you can find us on the web at go.gmu.edu slash econsociety. Until next time, abstain from that which is another's, make a becoming use of that which is your own, and whatever you do, don't be a man of system. Catch you next time on Loose Vegan Indeterminate.